I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join me on a quest to find awe and wonder in all creation, human or wild, vast or small, spiritual encounters that move us beyond words. At the age of eight, Daniel Nayeri arrived in Edmond, Oklahoma, as a refugee from Isfahan, an ancient city in the center of Iran, halfway between the Persian Gulf and the Caspian Sea. Daniel, his mother Sima, and sister Dina had left behind an affluent family life that in his recollection takes on nearly mythical qualities. Our house had an aviary in it. You know, I used to think of it as the house with the birds in the walls because there was a giant aviary where we had all these, you know, potted trees and, and different exotic birds. So to me, it was a very magical place. I remember the street on which my dad had his dental practice. And it's a particularly beautiful street. It reminds me of Park Avenue, if you've ever been to Manhattan. It's a two lane street but in between there is this median where there's just these gorgeous mulberry trees that go all the way down the building is sort of an older part of town so the buildings are all stone isfahan is a garden capital of the silk road right there are just orchards everywhere both in the public and private spheres gigantic monuments are still there so siosepol is a famous one Siosepol, Persian for Bridge of 33. That number refers to the stunning colonnade of 33 vaulted stone arches built around 1600. It's a bridge that spans the Zayandarud, the most important river of the Iranian plateau. Isfahan has seemingly endless such colonnades in public spaces, elegant domes tiled in royal blue and turquoise, celebrated gardens and reflection pools. No less dazzling than that ancient city with its monumental architecture, at least in young Daniel's eyes, was the confident commanding figure of his paternal grandfather, who lived in a different kind of place altogether as he owned quite a bit of land away from the city. When I was very young, about four years old, we drove to my grandfather's land from Isfahan to Ardistan. And we get out of this giant Chevrolet and I remember sort of putting my feet down on the dirt and kind of walking along this wall. In Iran, the houses often have sort of high walls and little atria that sit next to the house where there'll be kind of a portico with a little bit of a fountain and stone or brick floors with a couple trees. It's just a, a place to sit outside, drink your tea, that sort of thing. So I walk along this wall and I hear this commotion and it's quite loud and I hear this grunting that it does not sound human. And I walk along until I finally get to the opening. And there I have the primary part of this memory, which is these men struggling with a bull and sort of slipping on the cobblestone, not able to control it in any way, uh, but doing their best, kind of cursing and, you know, shouting instructions to each other. And it seems like such an emergency moment until the sliding door opens from the house and my grandfather walks out. And it is, it's like Doc Holliday walking, you know, to the OK Corral. He is this sort of heroic figure who walks calmly up to this chaos 
picks up the knife that had been dropped on the ground, takes the head of the bull and does what a farmer would call the humane thing of killing it quickly and efficiently. And from there, of course, when he slices the neck of the bull, blood. All I remember is red. And then, of course, with the hand of my mother quickly scooping across in front of my face and pulling me away and shouting for my father to go and clean this up before her little baby boy um, has to return to this courtyard. So my grandfather to this day still has thousands of acres there. For the rest of Daniel's life, this memory of his grandfather would loom large in his imagination, even though the young boy's ties to the comfortable, affluent world of his childhood would be severed. That break came after his mother put the family's position and standing and even their very lives at risk by converting to Christianity. When the secret police discovered what she had done, she fled with her children in terror, landing ultimately in Oklahoma. Young Daniel's story of losing those ties to his cultural past and becoming a complete outsider is chronicled in his novel Everything Sad is Untrue, subtitled A True Story. It's a YA novel based on his own life. Above and beyond childhood feelings of disconnection from the people and familiar sights of Isfahan, he also wrestles with this monumental question overarching his family's story with everything that flows from his mother's decision. Is what you gained commensurate to what we lost? Daniel's family lost more than wealth alone, and I should clarify right here, it was Daniel's mother who left with the children, not his father. He would stay in Iran, retaining his wealth and position, but more about that later. Daniel's mother, Seema, obviously gave up her economic status, but additionally, both she and her husband were Sayed, which is to say, they could claim direct descent from the Prophet Muhammad. In Iran, where most people are Shia Muslims, this status, Sayed, is exceptionally important because Shia Muslims believe that religious and often political authority are vested in the Prophet's genetic posterity. Sayed specifically means someone from the bloodline of Muhammad. And so growing up, yeah, that was an honorific that was applied to both sides of my family, right? Both my mother and father. And what it means, well, Theologically, it is a specific and special status. One is considered closer to the heart of the prophet. So one's prayers are more efficacious. So people would go to the Sayyid and say, like, pray, pray for my sick aunt, right? These kinds of theological honorifics are an aspect of, yeah, Iranian, specifically Shiite Islam. In other words, young Daniel's extended family were members of the religious and cultural elite. And also, these were well-off people. His father, a dentist, coming from a landed family. His mother having graduated from medical school just a year before he was born. And as he tells the story, all of this status gets thrown into jeopardy when the family takes a trip to London. He's about four and a half years old. The reason for going on this trip is to help with preparations for an aunt's wedding— and it's important to say here that this aunt living in London, along with his grandmother there, had both become Christian. My father, my mother, my sister and I, we were going to go to London and stay for quite a while, about six months if I recall. 
in order to help with the preparation of the wedding and um, as sort of an extended stay to be with my grandmother and my aunt. And because it was such an extended stay, my sister was in a daycare. And at the daycare, she was having just a horrible time. There were several very mischievous young kids. And and one of them one day kind of pulls her aside and says, hey, you know, I've got a secret. Come over here. Uh, you know, put your little pinky finger in this door jam." And she sort of, you know, she was just delightful. She was naive. She had no sense that this was going to be a horrible experience. And so she puts her finger on the door jam and the little boy slams the door. And of course it severs the tip of her finger. We weren't there. My mother and father get this emergency call. They go rushing to the daycare. They take her to the hospital. They sew the tip of this finger back on. And they come back to my grandmother's apartment where I was and where I remember distinctly like my sister coming in and kind of in that daze, if you've ever come back from a hospital after an emergency, like a broken bone, you've gotten some painkillers, you're still in this sort of shock state. And and my sister gets taken to her bedroom or my grandmother's bedroom and to lay down. And so the family story goes that when my sister comes back out, it was a joyful disposition that one would not expect from a young girl who's just got bandages all over her hand. And my mother kind of begins to ask, like, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And there my sister describes that she was sitting, you know, in bed, worried, sad, hurting, when a, a sort of a man appears at the foot of the bed. And she sort of describes this experience of him radiating comfort and saying, um, everything's going to be okay. You know, you're mine now. Everything is going to be okay. And she comes out and, and you have to understand, this is not a young girl who has grown up in a culture where there are any depictions of Jesus. But my grandmother says, you know, that, that was Jesus. That sounds like Jesus. And she said, well, then, you know, I'm a Christian now, says my you know, what is she? She's six, seven at this time. <laughs> and, and this is a very alarming statement for several reasons. Of course, it's a, you know, deeply mystical experience. When one looks in the room, there was no presence of any man in there. And as I said, in Iran, one does not have easy depictions of Jesus just sitting around. So it wasn't something that felt or seemed as though she had sort of conjured from her unconscious. And if we went back at this time, especially, and a young lady goes to school and says, I'm a Christian, this would cause gigantic problems. Um, there was, of course, the secret police there. Apostasy is a capital crime in Iran. And so my mother, who was a devout Muslim, a Quranic scholar, was in some ways forced to engage with this question of, one, what just happened? Two, why is my daughter saying she's a Christian? Three, um, you know, my grandmother had converted to Christianity and so had my aunt. And so, you know, we're going to go to a wedding in a church. And so who, what is this? Who are these people? What are they saying? And to hear my mother tell it, of course, she will tell you, you know, this would be the first time she really sat down and read the Bible. And as somebody who understood and had read the Quran, this was not as obtuse as it might be uh, to someone who didn't know what they already believed, right? The distinctions were quite clear. And so over the course of this period of time and the rest of the trip, this is the instigating 
you know, event that kind of caused my mother to convert as well. And so she begins to engage with the church where they were going to have this wedding. She begins to read the Bible and she converts. She becomes a Christian. And this is now from my father's perspective, an even bigger problem. Because when we return to Iran, my mother has this sort of what people call the zeal of the recently converted. She wants to join the underground church. She wants to find missionaries who are working in Iran at the time. She wants to continue in her sort of faith. If a Muslim converts to Judaism or Christianity and is found guilty of apostasy in Iran in the religious court, they're put to death. So it's not a small problem. And of course, if a Sayyid does so, this is an even bigger issue. Just real quickly here, she finds an underground church of Christians, and yet, for all the secrecy, she's hanging a crucifix in her car. Correct. Yeah, my mother is not. Well, my mother's actually never been good at keeping secrets. First of all, like the idea of my mother in an underground church is a hilarious, like comedic setup because um, I've never known my mother to be able to hold on to any secret whatsoever. And she doesn't. She doesn't plan to. And she doesn't. Of course, she's not silly. She knows not to bring other people into harm's way. But you're right. She absolutely hangs a little cross from her rearview mirror in her car. In retrospect, an incredibly daring and reckless thing to do. There was an incident where she got a little a little note on the car that said, if I ever see this cross again, I'll kill you. She then took down that cross and put up a bigger cross because... <laughs> Boy, that's that's my mom. <laughs> so yeah, she she was um, she was of course part of the what they would call the underground church, the secret church, but also very much wanting to let people know of the good news. There's another story, and never made it in the book, where she was sort of interviewing for a position as a doctor, making the rounds in a, a home for the deaf and the blind. The administrator, very devout Muslim man, was kind of, you know, interviewing her. And it turns into a bit of an interrogation about her faith. And it then turned into her proselytizing to this man <laughs> because she was just not willing to not only hide it, but she would like for that man to know the good news. And that sort of risk profile is not one that will keep you uh, <laughs> keep you safe for very long in Iran. And she wasn't. She finally ended up being caught by the secret police. One day, my mother is in a grocery store and a van pulls up and she's escorted in by the secret police. The secret police there had this very particularly ominous name to me. It's just the committee. They weren't dressed in a uniform of any kind. They sort of famously just had like khakis, button-up shirt and a little skull cap, and which somehow makes it more terrifying. Anyway, they pull her into a safe house, one of these kind of interrogation rooms where as the son of my mother, I've probably been spared. I know I have been spared a lot of the the details, but the upshot of the interrogation is fundamentally that they would like to know the names of the members of the underground church. The ultimatum being that they would kill my mother, me, and my sister. So my mother had a week to do this. Daniel is not exaggerating the precariousness of the family situation here. 
And let me just warn you that the next few seconds will describe violence, just in case you want to rejoin us in about 20 seconds. Eventually, the pastor of the church is found out. The pastor has a sad story, I'm afraid. He had come to Iran to be a missionary. He had been found out about, I think, two and a half, maybe three years after we left. Um, someone actually killed him in the street. He had had his throat slit and was left there. But it was sort of a particularly um, brutal um, end. Given what would eventually happen to the pastor, Daniel's mother was justifiably terrified by the demand of the committee, the secret police, to turn over names of her fellow congregants. The day that she was detained by the secret police, Daniel was at school in kindergarten. My father had picked me up from school, and we drive home to see my mother in an absolute panic, packing bags and trying to figure out how to kind of escape the country as quickly as possible. Um, my father, you have to imagine, is dealing with uh, you know a wife who at this point has converted away from his religion, has all kinds of new friends that are going to bring nothing but trouble, and... Now, this is a fairly sudden pivot, right? This is the idea that, well, now, as a result of these decisions, she and the two kids are going to be leaving forever. So at the very end of your book, in a little epilogue, you thank your family, your wife and your son for giving you the love, your words, the love to help you revisit moments of shatter. It seems to me that in your life history, in the history of your family, this rupture, this moment of shatter is probably the biggest, where your mother's choice changes everything that's going to happen, and the consequences are innumerable. Yes, yeah. Innumerable is the right way to put it. It's hard to consider, people will sometimes all speak at schools and a young student will raise their hand and ask like, would you prefer to have been back? And it's inconceivable to me how to even imagine what my life would have been. The valences at that moment switch almost entirely. We go from being a a whole family, you know, my father chose to stay. So it's as though a divorce occurred, of course, they separate. So I no longer see my father Everyone else in my family, of course, stays. Uh, my grandfather, my aunts, uncles, cousins, everyone. So we immediately lose our family, our house, go from particularly privileged and wealthy family to refugees, completely poor, homeless. It all sort of just flips, right? You go from being, you know, in a grade school where you can speak everything to completely unable to communicate with anyone. Daniel Nayeri here on Constant Wonder. He's author of Everything Sad is Untrue, a true story. In just a moment, we'll hear about the three miracles that helped this mother and her children escape to safety, and we're going to follow them as they seek to find a place of belonging in another hemisphere altogether. Embark on a whimsical journey with The Appleseed and host Sam Payne. It's one of many shows from the BYU Radio family of podcasts. Wrap yourself in captivating stories, expertly woven by talented storytellers, 
You'll hear live studio audiences taking immense delight in a broad tapestry of tales, some humorous, others poignantly reflective. The apple seed is always a family-friendly experience. It sparks imagination, creative enough to make fiction feel like fact, and bring real-life events back to life. The apple seed. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. In the story, we describe it as the three miracles, right? These improbable moments of coincidence, or as I would call them, miracles that facilitated us escaping. My father had done emergency dental work for a particular bureaucrat after a holiday, where he had cracked his teeth on some kind of festive cookie, and he had gone into the office to help him that holiday and、um, gotten one of those, you know,、uh, favors to be named later. You know, one of those lucky incidents where this man's chipped tooth kind of saves our lives. He then, of course, facilitates the visas to get out. Miracle number one: a returned favor from just the right bureaucrat. A second miracle involved Daniel himself, and this is a scene that any parent of young children can relate to. At the airport, of course, they, as with any airport, they're going to check your documentation, and the documentation, in the case of my mother, would very likely set off alarm bells that this person's been put on a restricted list by the committee, and so on and so forth. And so this is going to end very quickly. But they had to try, and so my mother is, you know, waiting in line, waiting in this moment of tension of whether or not she's going to be arrested on site. And at that moment where she walks up to the counter. My grandfather, my mother's father, comes running from the this little gift shop area and screaming that Josero me that I was lost and he's been searching for the last you know five minutes.、Um, he's gone. We don't know. My mother just breaks down and starts crying. Of course, she's had quite a stressful <laughs> recent history. Everything just comes comes at once, and she just starts wailing. She almost you know hits the ground on her knees, and this officer just. Closes the book, hands it to her, just says, "Just go, just go, find your kid." And so she runs through the security apparatus and comes and finds me. I, mean, I was by the candy bars, as any you know, <laughs> five-year-old would be. And it's one of those again, the coincidence of it, the oddness of it. No one expects this. This wasn't a scheme. You know, frankly, my grandfather should have seen me. I was at his feet. It was one of those moments where it all kind of comes together. So, in the hubbub of your going missing, the official just couldn't be bothered with the the hubbub and said, "Just go." Yeah, well, he's he's got a wailing woman in front of him. We now live in the security state of post nine eleven airports and can hardly believe this idea. And I don't think it would be quite as easy as it was in nineteen eighty seven. So that was perhaps a product of its moment. There wasn't. Gigantic X-ray machines and digitized security in the way that there is now. And the third miracle, as I recall, is just the plane should never have come that took you to Dubai. That's right. It was a holiday. It was a large holiday. Ramadan is a very long form holiday that causes all kinds of、um, closures, schedule changes in any Muslim country. And what had happened was this plane. Had had some sort of technical malfunction that required it to land in an emergency to get 
checked out and refuel and do their kind of diagnostics. And that plane was the fortuitous landing that allowed us to sneak on. And where we landed, we didn't really, of course, have much of a choice. We landed in the UAE. With this unscheduled stopover of an unexpected plane they get to board, Daniel's family gets whisked off to Dubai and begins the lengthy bureaucratic process of establishing refugee status and applying for asylum in the Western country. It's a process made difficult by the fact that they didn't have all the necessary documentation. They were missing, for one thing, Daniel's birth certificate. So we're in these embassies Effectively trying to establish refugee status, the first way you have to do that is to establish that you were in harm's way, that to return to your country of origin would be a death sentence. Thereafter, you have to establish quite a lot. We didn't have documentation. So my main memory is waiting rooms of embassies where we would sit for the entire day. And for me, the questions would come up for 15 minutes of extreme tension, where effectively this individual was trying to establish that I was, in fact, my mother's son. And so the questions were fairly simple. You know, is this your mother? Did you come with her? These kinds of things. Um, to a young child, these questions start to sound like trick questions. And you take in what these stakes are. If you fail this test, they might think that this is some woman trying to kidnap a child, and you might be separated from your mother through this misunderstanding. And so I remember quite a lot of extremely tense, high-stakes drama in my own little mind that if I could have assuaged this little child, I would have said, just answer everything. You'll be fine. No one's going to rip you from your mother's arms. But that's not how I perceived it. I, it was sort of very much a kind of a tense boredom, which is a really difficult emotion to express because you do become dulled to things. If you sit in any waiting room for eight hours, there's no TV in there, there's no magazines, there's no books, you don't have video games. You sit there and you start to go deep into your own mind. I credit those days as how I ended up becoming a writer because I would just sit and imagine for hours. We ended up getting temporary asylum to Italy, a little town on the outskirts of Rome called Mentana, where they did have an old building that they had refurbished. It was actually an old hotel that they had refurbished, the Hotel Barba, for incoming refugees. We were going into the city and once again applying for some sort of political asylum and during that time, of course, our education had to continue too. So my mother was juggling both of these. A lot of people, they would kind of put that kind of thing on hold. I always credit my mother for just the energy of doing all this every day and still kind of wanting my sister and I to continue our education. And so she found an American family that had kids our age, which was just so lucky. And they were homeschooling their kids with this curriculum that had there's six subjects, 11 books per subject, so 66 books, right, of workbooks to go through. And um, and it was late. I remember it was two months before the end of that year. And so they were already well into, you know, books 55 and onward. And and so she took the refuse of the, all the sort of filled out workbooks and went and bought one of these comically large erasers from a stationary shop 
in Rome and would sit next to us for hours and erase the books that had already been filled out and hand them to us. It almost felt like an assembly line. You know, my mother would erase them, hand them to me. I would fill them out and my sister next to me. And my memory of that time was very much, you know, my mom is sitting there just struggling to erase. And if you've ever done something wrote that, that much, it is exhausting. I still remember she got this one particular callus on her finger from just erasing. And I remember thinking, wow, that was kind of a visual metaphor for this time where we were um, juggling both the life of a refugee whose job it is to wait and do nothing and make no progress, right? Stay put. It's limbo. It's purgatory. And my mother's unwillingness to waste time and watching those two clash, these two forces, right? It was a big lesson about how to handle those kinds of times in life, but also how my mother was going to be unstoppable about this. When they weren't waiting in lines at embassies or filling out secondhand workbooks, Daniel made some friends playing soccer. But he never quite felt at ease being there as somebody who belonged. In the outskirts of this town, Mentano, where we were, it was a particularly mixed population, right? So at this, in this refugee hostel, the majority of the people were Eastern Bloc populations. And what nowadays we would call Roma or gypsies was how they described themselves then. And so the language was very um, chaotic. I would remember older, uh, sort of babushka looking sort of, uh, Russian women or Eastern women. And they would sit and there was almost a game of telephone where one of them would say something in a language they shared with only one other. And then that second person would then translate it into language they shared with a third and so on. And it would sort of pass until all the shared languages had expressed the idea and then they would all kind of go back. And so the dialogue was this very funny game of telephone that would happen across five languages. But there wasn't any real Farsi there. And so we were all trying to understand each other with whatever middle language there was. And at the time, I picked up quite a bit of Italian because that was what I was hearing most when I was playing. And I would go to the courtyards of these little towns and play soccer with the boys and one of the first moments I think I really understood myself as an outsider up until this time, like I was really, I was around people who knew me, spoke what I spoke, liked me. I didn't find myself particularly disenfranchised, as an adult would say, until this one moment where we were playing soccer and these sort of older gentlemen sitting at this Italian cafe called us over, me and a bunch of these little Italian boys from the town. And they were like, listen, if you ever see the gypsies coming into town, you let us know. You come running to us. Tell us, you're like, the gypsies are coming. The gypsies are coming. And we'll make sure to stop them before they, they get into town. I remember standing in the back of the group and I was kind of nodding as you do when an older man tells you, gives you instructions. And I remember being like, I think I live with those gypsies. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do here. And I suddenly had the sense that I might be an unwelcome guest for some folks. I was quite welcome for others and treated with such welcome and joy to the point that, of course, Italy has an important place in my heart, a country that was one of the first places that I felt truly safe and happy and just overwhelmed with its beauty. But that one, you know, it kind of reminds you that, you know, being aware of one's surroundings, being aware of myself as someone who I suppose had something to prove. 
Limbo in Italy finally came to an end for Daniel, his sister and mother, when they were granted permanent asylum in the United States. Daniel's eight years old when they arrive in Oklahoma, around 1990, with their only worldly possessions packed in a suitcase. As they begin to orient themselves in a land of peanut butter and banana pudding, no one in Edmond, Oklahoma, has ever heard of, seen, or tasted gormasabzi, or any of the food that Daniel has grown up with. Some kids don't even know what a date is, and he feels keenly that sense of otherness that he had felt in Italy when warned about the gypsies. But now he was the outsider, and he was highly attuned to this whole business of fitting in at school as a newcomer and interacting well with his teachers. As a kid, I was, even in any kind of off-the-cuff kind of conversational moment with a teacher or whatever, I was really particularly worried about this idea of being unwelcome or being sort of a a mooch, being somebody who was here to take. In his book, Everything Sad is Untrue, he's careful to point out that his teachers were patient and kind, and he felt like they heard the message he was trying to convey. I'm not one of the bad ones, and if you let me, like, I've got a lot to offer. I wanted to be wanted. I wanted to prove that I was a good addition. You know, I've never been a refugee, so I'm not making any claim here. But as a young kid, feeling marked as a minority in Southern California because I was a Mormon, the only one in my grade, by the way, I was hypervigilant about every outward aspect of who I was and how I would be perceived. And on the school bus, I tried so hard to read all the body language. And you write about getting paper clips jabbed into the back of your neck. I, I understand that. I, I got some literal needling in the back of my neck. What, what were the differences that you were always assessing? What were the, the hurdles to actually belonging? There's a great Dr. Seuss book about the sneeches, and there's the star belly sneeches and the regular sneeches. And the distinction is just that they have a star on their belly, and that's enough. That's enough to be different. And so in a lot of ways, one of the important parts for me in a story like this, as specific as mine is, is to allow it to be universal. I love when I get emails from people like yourself, you know, where we have completely different details in our experience, but they see in that story a version of themselves. And I think that's really important. I don't want to write a tale of immigrant woe that's very specific to me. I wanted to write a story of a young boy who finds himself an outsider. And everyone kind of has in some manner in their own lives. I was utterly unaware of any kind of fashion at the time, right? What's cool? Starter jackets were cool. What's cool? Stussy shirts were cool. At the time, I thought I could just wear my Sam's Club sweats that have the top and the bottom, you know, these sort of sweatpants, sweatshirt combo. After a while, people start to notice these things about you, that, hey, you, you don't really wear normal clothes. I learned very quickly not to bring from home any kind of bagged lunch or even just the ability to speak. I really had trouble in the early years of understanding people. And there was quite a lot of just misunderstanding of the joke, um, wanting an explanation of a joke, these kind of small little social distinctions of, I'm not with it. I don't get what you get. And so I became very, as you said, hypervigilant of wanting to get it. I would make lists of like your mama joke categories or 
I would go to my music teacher and ask her for printouts of the lyrics to the songs we sang at the beginning of class in order to like know the lyrics. Cause I, I felt like I was the only one who didn't know the lyrics to God bless America or God bless the USA or any of these kind of patriotic songs. And I don't think I was, I look back now and of course everybody was mumbling the words. Yeah. Describe for us, if you will, the particular challenge of being in elementary school and junior high in that era when people didn't even know basic geography about the Middle East and Iraq and Iran, it was all the same. Well, so in the time period that we're describing, a different war was kicking off, which was Desert Storm. The United States was deploying soldiers into Kuwait and against Iraq. That was the enemy. And so being from Iran at a time, especially with kids, where Iran and Iraq are kind of a hazy, fuzzy, same, same kind of thing. Yeah, it would create these sort of social situations where I would end up hoping to give a geography lesson, hoping not to align myself with with anyone that these people thought was the enemy. Um, Tinker Air Force Base is right there in Oklahoma. I have nothing but sympathy for, you know, the Iraqi people who found themselves in several wars as well. But as an Iranian, we had just had an eight-year war with Iraq. And so to come to the U.S. and be mistaken for who had been the most other group of people at that point in my life, it was a fascinating collapse of these distinctions because I was like, what? How could you possibly think Iran and Iraq are the same? They've been fighting for eight years. Like this is This is the most different group of people you can get. For them, it was all the same. So yeah. So uh, whether whether you had the star on your belly or not, it was, it was all sneeches. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Daniel's parents eventually divorced, and his mother remarried in Oklahoma to the one Farsi-speaking man she met in her area. My mother sort of sought out the Iranian community, very, very small, vanishingly small community in Oklahoma. And there was this man who um, was Persian and was able to speak, you know, with her. But it turns out if you've got a pool of one candidate, there's a high probability they won't be the best. And so it wasn't a great relationship. Actually, it was the opposite of a great relationship. There was just a very, very acrimonious fighting, a lot of conflict resolution that neither party was particularly good at. And so there was just a lot of abusive behavior. Daniel's stepfather, Ray, at times abused Seema so badly that she ended up in the hospital, once with a broken jaw. There were even instances when that abuse was turned on Daniel. Both Daniel and his mother would have to decide how much they would let Ray push them, and when to stand up for themselves and make their own way in this new, perplexing world. One of the stories I particularly remember about Ray, I thought it was very illustrative of his personality, and both for the good and the bad. You know, Oklahoma, of course, is Tornado Alley. And boy, you've got tornadoes ripping through that state. And they're terrifying. Sometimes they're half a mile wide. They are hundreds of mile an hour winds. They're picking up entire cities and destroying them. This is very, very dangerous. And, and the danger, of course, of a tornado is that there's just debris flying at that speed. Every Oklahoman has stories of going out after a tornado and seeing the tree has been just pockmarked with nails and other metal debris that have been like embedded into the bark of the tree because they were flying like bullets, right? Any half intelligent Oklahoman will go into the bathtub when there's a tornado overhead 
and put a blanket over them and hope it passes over. But one night I remember Ray waking me up sort of brusquely and saying, get up, get up, we got to go. And I'm kind of in a sleepy daze. I wake up, I follow him to the front of the house where he's putting on his shoes. My mom is like trying to get me to put on a trash bag as a kind of a rain slick. It's just a chaotic moment. And I note, of course, that there's a giant storm. There's rain pouring down outside. It is pitch black. And Ray's telling me to put on my shoes. And so I do. And he sort of thrusts me out outside where he's got a ladder. And he quickly kind of instructs me that what we're going to do is sheets of shingles of the roof are coming up because of the winds. And so he's shouting at me in the middle of this in the storm that you need to hold these nails and we're going to hammer down these shingles so they don't rip off the roof. You know, he's a pretty frugal guy and it's such a control freak kind of thing to do, right? This idea of going out into the middle of this tornado and hammering down the shingles. And so I find myself on the roof. I climb this ladder. It's just pouring rain. And and the rain is itself turning into sleet. Absolutely nobody should be on the roof at that moment. And um, and I remember him getting so mad at me for being terrible. I'm terrible at hammering. But I was trying to like hold a little nail and do the little ding, 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 ding hammer. And he's over here, of course, one nail up, one swing, nail down. And so it was just this moment of like, he really was extremely capable. He really was somebody who had had to come up in the world by himself with these survival skills that were to me, um, incredibly impressive in the martial arts. His sort of physical prowess was just so, so impressive. I've never met anybody like him physically. Um, and then at the same time, emotionally, he had none of the maturity to know that it doesn't matter how, how well you can swing a hammer. It doesn't matter how lithe and agile you are to be able to hold onto this roof. Like these shingles are going. Um, and so it was a very important distinction to me of, wow, here is somebody who's so lopsided, they could physically do anything and emotionally really incapable of knowing where the boundaries are. The fear factor of those tornadoes. I mean, you've been in fearful places. You're at the airport trying to get to Dubai. You were in all kinds of exposure, vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Did the tornado that strike the fear of God into you, where were you? <laughs> I remember being terrified at first because I was slipping and because I didn't know how to hammer anything. And the storm is sort of overhead. And yet it was also a turning point for me as a young man because maybe it was out of spite. I let this box of nails slide out of my hand down the roof line into the bushes. And and he sort of gave me this look of disdain, right? Of like, what use are you up here? And I remember the fear of the storm just sort of washing out of me immediately. It was a very, maybe it was like a competitive spirit or a revolt against his disgust of me or something. But I, I remember very quickly deciding that this storm isn't going to be the thing. Maybe, maybe I was more scared of Ray than the storm. I kind of turned and looked up at the storm. Well, you were kind of trying to keep your head down because the sleep sort of hits your eyes and it hurts. And I opened my mouth, sort of this defiant gesture. I, I was 12, I think, at the time. Um, you know, a 12-year-old might trying to be unimpressed with the storm, sort of eat the storm, sort of speak. And that was a pretty important moment, I think, back on sometimes. I had been a very fearful kid 
up until that time. Everything from the refugee camps to, I would sleep under the bed at night in a lot of these refugee spaces because I thought like people would come like breaking the door down. I operated from a very fearful kind of space. And, and I remember being on that roof and it, it being at least one of those moments where I realized that this is a decision. I can maybe make the other decision if I need to. Coming of age would require Daniel, once he had decided he wouldn't give in to fear, to come to terms with the difficult personality of his biological father back in Iran. Daniel writes that if his mom was unstoppable, his father was immovable, unable to give up the life he had for this radical new direction his wife had taken. This was a man who made his presence known in any room, puffing out his chest, ebullient, he did a lot of grandstanding. About three years after Daniel arrived in the U.S., when he was about 11, there was a brief reunion in person when his dad decided to come and visit them in America. And this is, of course, just the crashing of these two worlds together. My dad up until this time has been a voice on the phone as soon as we left Iran. He had uh, almost a mythological quality to him. He's great speaker. He extemporaneously knows dozens of passages of poetry and Farsi, and he's very sort of witty and funny. And he represented, of course, the mystical land of Iran. And he was going to come visit Edmond, Oklahoma. And what would this mean? Was he actually going to prove to just be this, you know, just a schlubby old, you know, just some guy, you know, or was he going to be this mythic figure? And when he came, you know, it also represented this conflict of like, my stepdad was still there. So he's not coming to visit a home in which, you know, he kind of has a role of any kind. I worried very much about, you know, he was Muslim. So like, what would it look like? And sort of if he ever attended our church, you know, what would it look like? He didn't speak English at the time. I remember my sister especially had a lot of like anxiety around being an outsider. Like we were not allowed to speak Farsi anywhere, you know, in earshot of the Americans because she would be so upset. He, of course, is this like braggadocious big man who like has no problem speaking Farsi aloud in a restaurant where people can hear. And so when he came, all these things sort of coalesced, right? As anyone is traveling internationally, he had to have a lot of cash with him. And he had no problem flashing a big wad of cash. He's this Iranian dude who pulls out a wad, pays for Twinkies, which he fell in love with for some reason, pays uh, for them with $100 bills at the 7-Eleven and, oh, and decides he's just going to buy the store out of Twinkies because he was living on them at the time. And... Um, him entering Oklahoma was this just explosion in some ways of all these worlds. The story that I tell is the one where the most misunderstanding sort of happens, which is him attending our church. And um, it's a very small kind of evangelical church in Oklahoma. They have a visitor from across the planet. And so it gets a lot of attention. I mean, there's 40 people in this church, so you can imagine. He stands out. And the pastor, of course, you know, in good faith and good intention, wants to talk to him about Christianity and, and these things. Not Exactly understanding that in the cultural context of Persians and Iranians, when they are guests, you know, there is a particular kind of agreeableness that is, it's part of the culture, it's part of the polite system. And so my father was standing there and he's 
agreeing with everything that this pastor is saying and the pastor is getting very excited because a lot of what he's saying is taking him through the Romans road and taking him through the, like the, the assertions of Christianity as truth. And my dad is just like nodding and accepting. And he's much of the English, I assume, is actually was even passing over and through him without a connection. So before I know it, we're standing there just thinking we're having a nice little social interaction. Before I know it, he's agreed to be baptized in this church, in this first attendance. So they turn that pool on and get it heated. And by the end of the service, he's up there kind of just smiling and nodding. And they're very excited, you know, feels providential. And, you know, in some ways, I remember as a kid being able to understand what's going on and both sides of it somewhat and feeling like my dad's like almost like letting them on, which made me feel bad for the pastor because he's sort of being taken down the primrose path, but also feeling really bad for my dad who doesn't understand what's happening and does not have the polite system to be like, no, thank you. You could never say that. And so they're both um, victims to the social interaction, but he's getting baptized. And so, so he got baptized to be polite. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? He would have no problem doing it again. He'd get baptized twice if you needed. Like, it's just not a thing that matters. <laughs> so now this is, this is my father, of course. And so we quite literally, he gets out of there. He's toweling his head dry and he's like, let's go get some Mexican food and Twinkies. And I was like, okay, cool. Daniel's father, it seems, wants to be the life of any party. Any party. Even if you happen to find yourself in an American church on a Sunday. But the alienation between him and his family couldn't be resolved. One of the many losses that Seema and her children endured for her faith. Daniel's father has continued to live in Iran, and contact between the two of them today is mostly long distance across the world in 10 time zones. So my relationship with my father is very much still on the phone, right? If we call once a month, my cell phone bills would make you blush, um, but very much worth it. I get to speak with him about my son, who is now 11, and he and I sort of catch up that way. Daniel's relationship with his father is the inspiration for his next book, a work of fiction. You can watch for it. It's titled, The Many Assassinations of Samir, The Seller of Dreams. But we want to talk some more here about his mother, who after several failed attempts to save the relationship, finally left Ray for good. Her perseverance in overcoming obstacles continues to impress Daniel, and we'll hear more about that in just a moment. We want to explore, too, the fact that there came a time for Daniel, as with any child raised in a religious home, when he had to decide for himself what he believed. Given what he had been through for the sake of religion, would Daniel himself embrace it? I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Have you grown weary of news coverage that feeds off anger and division, and yet you still want to engage with important issues? Well, let me introduce you to Top of Mind. It's another podcast from the BYU Radio family. Each week, the Top of Mind team, with award-winning host Julie Rose, undertakes a careful analysis of one tough topic. The goal is learning how to stay open and curious when confronted with perspectives that challenge us. Best of all, every episode will leave you feeling hopeful and better able to become an effective advocate for what matters to you. 
top of mind. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If to young Daniel his father was larger than life in a jovial, flamboyant sort of way, his mother too seemed superhuman in her own way, and she still does seem unstoppable to him today. Daniel has said that this book is a love letter to his mother and her indomitable spirit. After all, whether you sympathize with her beliefs or no, she's clearly a person who put it all on the line. I asked Daniel how she came to be the way she is. Oh, I wish I knew. If I could bottle it, I would be so excited. I have no idea how my mother is as unstoppable as she is. Certainly, there's a strong drive in all her family members, but my mother is a different level of dynamic than anyone I've ever seen. To this day, she's in her 60s, and if you got me and five college students to help someone move from their house, I promise you she would move more boxes. While they were exhausted eating pizza, she'd still be moving. I mean this from a very literal physical level of energy output all the way to the spiritual level of an unstoppable and unwavering pursuit in her faith. You know, ever since we got to the United States, she spent quite a lot of time working with missions, organizations that would send signals to Iran. Sort of Radio Voice of Christ is a famous one. She's written many books in Farsi on different Bible study topics and continues to kind of do that work. I've always just been particularly impressed. There's a line in the book that says, if you don't stop, you're unstoppable. Anytime you're writing a story about your family, I mean, I think one of the first things you want to do is ask yourself, like, what are the superlatives in our family, both good and bad? And I think the superlative I came away with that changed the most things in our family was my mother's unstoppable kind of behavior. And in the context that my life began, which is we needed to escape and we needed to escape because it was non-negotiable that my mother is going to be a Christian and that she was going to raise us that way, then to be unstoppable is a pretty great um, quality to have. Your family saga involves coincidence and miracles, vision, conversion, devotion, and a pivot so strong that life was at stake. And your mother went forward and led the family to a new country because of this. And when I think of that, how serious do you feel today about those events that we term miraculous, uh, supernatural, some people might say, divine, holy, because your mother made that pivot and didn't really have to justify it the way maybe a theologian or a philosopher would. She just said, I believe it. And where does that leave you? Yeah, so one of the things you have to do if you're going to reckon with this as a child and watching what she did was almost dissect this person. Like you have to look at my mother with a very skeptical eye at first and say, okay, what happened here? In theology, this happens all the time with what they call the mad Christ doctrine, right? This idea that if you take Jesus at his word, um, it's very hard to then box him as like, okay, here was a good historical figure who was nice. Because at his word, he's making claims that are outrageous. Um, and because they're outrageous, he's either, what is it? The phrase I think is he's either a lunatic, a liar, or a, a lord. It's actually, you know, correct. 
my mother in a lot of ways has to be obviously not in magnitude, but in kind has to be assessed that way, right? Like, why did you do that? What did you gain? Is what you gained commensurate to what we lost? And your assessment of that is going to very strongly determine where you end up. My assessment of it is she was not a liar and she was not a lunatic. Of course, she's not Lord either, but she, she was very much given above and beyond in this trade something worthwhile. And what that is, of course, is her relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it would be very difficult for me to watch all this, to make a real assessment of it, like a good faith assessment of this person. It's hard to do that with your own mother, but to make an assessment and then come away and say, She's a faulty person. She has plenty of flaws, as we all do. But this moment, when she converted, did she experience something very real? My answer to that is yes. So my my experience is, I suppose you'd call it very serious. Um, and I think the miraculous and the su- supernatural, I think these things are happening all the time, every day. I find myself living in a world completely inseparable from the spiritual realm. I think if I was saying this with a Persian accent, it would come off better because it could be more mystical sounding. But I, I, in my American accent, I tell you, the world is a deeply supernatural place. Now, this book, Everything Sad is Untrue, it really only covers your life up to about middle school. You have, though, been keeping it up by chronicling more and more about your family's story, stuff yet to be published. But I wonder if you wouldn't mind jumping ahead now to the present day and try to describe that intersection of the supernatural and the mundane, the way that works out every day in your life as an adult? At this point in my life, I don't borrow other people's experiences or faith as I would have as an observer, as a young child. Like at this point, it's my daily, my daily life. You know, when I wake up in the morning, I go into this little shed and I begin to write. And when I write, I'm writing with my understanding of Jesus in the room, and I'm talking to him. He's the only audience I write for. I'm not writing as, you know, I'm not like dancing like no one's watching. I am writing and I'm speaking to him. He's a God who speaks and a God who listens. That is unlike anything in this world. When I say we speak, it's particularly normal. It's not, he does not speak in the red letter verses of my Bible, but he also never contradicts those. It's not like a guys uh, ribbing each other. I don't know how to describe it. You know, I've never really had a particularly strong like mentor or father figure. I've always wanted one. I've, and I've had a lot of <laughs> figures um, and I, I've always wanted to have one. One of the things I think about when I think about my relationship to God is how good he is that he is often the thing that we long for, even sometimes the things of this earth. When he speaks, a lot of times it, what it sounds like to me is what I imagine a father would say. Is this worth my time? You know, sometimes as a writer, you let the writing kind of drive the car. And for me, sometimes that writing is like pages and pages of superficial dialogue of what I think might be a funny joke at the end. But I often feel as though 
you know, he's my first reader and offering the kind of advice I've always wanted. And I woe betide me. I really feel the thing I feel most as an artist is for goodness sakes, don't waste their time. Like don't waste their time. If I've got, if I've got them for a minute, if I've got them for an hour, tell them something that they'll value on the eternal scale. Frankly, let's be real. <laughs> like I don't measure up to this standard. I'm not pretending I do. But if that's the standard, then gosh, maybe, you know, I will. And he's the best company I've ever been around. And he, he knows me and somehow still enjoys my company. That boggles my mind <laughs> that that is true. So if in your particular spiritual belief, if there's no real divide between the mundane and the otherworldly, well, well, I probably need to say here that I have been reading a lot of what Rabbi Abraham Heschel had to say about this. And he promotes this notion that every simple common activity of daily life can take the form of a prayer. That's an aspiration. And it's a tough one to put that idea into practice. I think a lot of people walk around with voices. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think everyone does. Um, I think quite a lot of people are inured to the sound. Um, quite a lot of people spend a lot of time with the wrong ones. <laughs> think we're constantly speaking to what I guess I risk sounding like a simpleton to say are demons and angels and Jesus Christ and Lord. I think this is happening quite literally as if a radio were on at all times in your, in your room. And I think as a result that it has become white noise. Um, I think I have spent time in dialogue with demons as well. And I find it horrifying <laughs> and, and self-annihilating and exactly as evil as it, as it sounds. And yet at the same time, I, th I think people are engaging in that dialogue all the time and sometimes think it's their inner voice. And when they do, I fear for that person because that, that is not a voice you should be listening to. I think about the, you know, what people call the still small voice. <laughs> I love that phrase. I meditate on that phrase because it's, it is very hard to tune your little receiver to it. And I think it's a discipline that we could use some mentorship in. I try to speak with Jesus so as not to speak with anyone else. As I said, he's the best company. <laughs> My hope would be to try to remove that veil or that delusion that these are different worlds, that these things sometimes happen, that miracles are very rare, <laughs> that, that we're no longer in the age of miracles, and or these kinds of ideas that um, almost really create large demarcation lines between reality, history, mythology, religion, spirituality, all these things. There's a line in the book that says, the line between history and mythology is 10 feet of fog. I think the line between a lot of things is just about 10 feet of fog. And certainly the spiritual and the natural world, less than 10 feet. <laughs> no fog. <laughs> Daniel Nayeri is author of Everything Sad is Untrue, A True Story. This episode was produced by Tenery Taylor with help from Lily Jensen. Sound design was by James Call. I'm Marcus Smith. 
Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.